Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Amen. Now, just to remind us here that we are setting uh, before us the larger theme of the pastoral admonition that is given in the book of Hebrews, uh, that we beware against backsliding and apostasy. That is the broader context in which we find here, for example, you see in chapter 5, the admonition of the author of Hebrews says, concerning him, that is concerning Melchizedek, who's the type of Christ, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you, speaking to these people, you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, that is, they ought to have made some level of progress unto Christ, whereby they themselves could teach others, they themselves have need again to be instructed. And so the author of Hebrews is giving the church a warning against backsliding and apostasy. Now, God is pleased to, by his Holy Spirit, to give us that warning today through the scriptures as well. Now, the Father, God the Father, is not seeking to shake any of you from your assurance of salvation. Let me say that by way of introduction here. He is, however, trying to shake us all from any carnal presumption or any inclination that is within us to think that we are secure within our own self. The Bible says elsewhere that we all, you and your pastor, need to take heed. Lest you think you stand, you end up falling. Who was it, boys and girls, among the disciples that thought he was the most secure among his disciples? You remember? It was Peter. Who was it that said, Lord, I will never leave you. And who was it that betrayed Jesus that night three times, saying, I do not know the man. I do not know the man. I do not know Jesus Christ. It was Peter. And the author of Hebrews is warning us that we must be watchful over our own soul and heart. You and I need to be careful. You and I need to govern our soul. You need to be a good manager of your own spiritual condition. You need to ask questions like, am I getting too full of myself lately? Am I drifting away from the love of God? Is my soul, with regard to the condition of my neighbors, somewhat dead? Have I lost 
a love, a zeal, a passion to see the glory of Jesus Christ spread to my neighbors and to the nations of the earth? Have I lost a zeal for the glory of Jesus and his name? And we could list numbers of questions here. So I don't want you to think here that over these next couple of weeks that I am trying here to you know, break that bruised reed or snuff out that smoldering wick. Now, I know that assurance for some is a problem sometimes. Uh, but here we also have to keep in mind that so is the danger of backsliding. So is the danger of presumption. So the author of Hebrews is chiding this congregation. They should have been making more progress in doctrinal knowledge. They have wasted too much time that should have been redeemed for the Lord. They should have been teachers now. But instead, they need to go over the foundations again. And so we need to ask, are we making the progress that we should be making? Um, some of you kids, some of you teenagers, you should be professing faith by now. But you haven't. You've had many years sitting under, we trust, a faithful ministry. You have had many years sitting at your parents' table, listening to the Bible teaching, hearing the prayers, hearing your parents answer the questions. But you haven't put your hand to the plow yet. Some of you adults... You haven't read a Christian book in years. You, you, there was a time in your life you used to love to pick up Christian books and learn something about the faith. It has, it, you, but you're, you've been leaning on those same books all these years. The author here is saying we need to build the superstructure here. He says, leaving the elementary teaching, verse 1, about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. He says, not laying again a foundation of repentance. That, that is, we said this two weeks ago, boys and girls, you remember? It's like building a home. You, you have the continuous pour. I love the continuous pour. It's always fun. The cement trucks line up, and they feed this machine, and they have a giant hose, and the guys in the big rubber boots are moving the hose like this, and they're pouring all the concrete. And they're laying the foundation. Well, that is great. But that's not going to get you a roof alone. You need a superstructure. You, you need to start the framing and the wiring and the plumbing, etc. And so it is in the Christian life. We need to build upon those foundations here. Now, two weeks ago, we said that one of those foundational truths was the resurrection. But there's another one I do want to talk about today before we get on to the bigger picture next week of the warnings against backsliding. And that is, in conjunction with the doctrine of the resurrection is the doctrine and the teaching of the final judgment, the eternal judgment of God. These are partners in doctrine here. You'll note that it even says in verse 2 that they are being instructed, have been instructed in the resurrection of the dead, and notice, and eternal judgment. So what I want to do today is Add to what we saw two weeks ago about the resurrection. I want to talk about the eternal judgment as well in several parts. 
<clears throat> we are told, number one, that the eternal judgment is a part of the foundational truth of the Christian faith. So we will demonstrate from the Bible the eternal judgment. We'll, we'll look at a number of verses. You will want to keep your Bible handy. Number two, we will see that the judgment of God is an eternal one. Number three, we will see that the judge of this judgment is the person of Jesus Christ. And then finally, after that, we will make some concluding applications here. So one, the judgment demonstrated from the Bible, the eternal judgment. Two, that the judgment is eternal. Three, that it is Jesus who is going to be the judge. And then we'll make some applications here. Now, Hebrews chapter 9, we haven't gotten there, but Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 says this, It is appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment. What is this judgment? Well, this judgment is a final judgment beyond history. It is a, and this judgment of God is one of the foundational truths of the Scriptures. Now, this is important because we live in a day increasingly of secularism. A few centuries ago, the minds of our neighbors would not have been so secular. They would have not always been evangelical Christians, but there was a, a greater worldview that kept the final judgment in mind. I think our culture is increasingly trying to push the idea of a final judgment out of the minds of men. You watch any television at all, and you will see that the philosophy of men is this life, this world, period. And it is not to cause us to think. I think that's one of the reasons we, we are so addicted to entertainment, is because we don't want to think about the final judgment of God. Secularism is a worldview, and it is one that wants to dethrone God from a final judgment. Now, having said that, however, the Bible does teach that non-believers, by God's common grace, can and do understand that there is a final judgment in their conscience. They know that there is something when their conscience speaks to them right or wrong. And we have to understand, boys and girls, that you know when, you're, when your inner voice says, that was wrong, I did something wrong, I did something shameful, I did something that was disobedient, what is that? That's a gift from God. Now, God gives that gift to non-believers as well as to believers. Now, non-believers often will suppress that voice in unrighteousness. They will try to push it aside. But there are non-believers who do at least acknowledge it. And what is that conscience? It is, it is that uh, foretaste of final judgment. And so non-believers do have this uh, in, in their own conscience. But the Christian, the Bible tells us more than natural revelation. The Bible makes it explicit that which is uh, said in nature and by way of us being made in the image of God is made all the more plain by the Bible. So this is why you have an ally. So when you witness, let me just say, when you are sharing 
something about the truth of scriptures or truth about God or Jesus Christ to your neighbors. You, you do have an ally in that the God has made the person you're talking to in the image of God. And that, so God has wired them and built within them certain things that will register as truth to them, namely the, the, the conscience. So when you explicitly talk about the final judgment, even though they may not have thought explicitly of the final judgment, it will register as truth to them because they do have experience of conscience. And so, for example, I think it's in Acts chapter 25 when Paul is preaching to Felix and Drusilla. You remember that story, boys and girls? Pete, Paul has been arrested and he's preaching to various you know, Roman authorities and he preaches and teaches to Felix and his wife, Drusilla. And he preaches about the judgment that is to come and it makes Felix nervous. And Felix cuts Paul off. He says, Paul, we'll have more time for this later. Why don't you go back to your cell, you know? Because I, I don't want to be confronted with this frightening reality. He knows it's there deep down within him. And Paul is bringing it forward inescapably to his understanding and to which he will have to acknowledge. So you, when you and I witness, keep that in mind, that, that we are witnessing to people who are not entirely tabula rasas, that is, blank slates, who have never have any conception of a final judgment. They do because they're made in the image of God. Unless God has given them completely over to a reprobate spirit. Or unless their heart is just so hardened that they tell you, I don't care, I want to go to hell. And there are people out there uh, some of the people who run the Boardwalk Chapel told us that uh, they were witnessing, and some people actually did as they were inviting people to listen to their gospel presentation. Some of them had just outright said, I want to go to hell. I'm going to hell. The eternal judgment, what is the eternal judgment? The eternal judgment, and I'm relying on John Owen a lot in his commentary on Hebrews, John Owen says it is to give account for, of what is past. It is to, quote, give account of what is past. Or to put it in the language of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, that that which is done in the body, whether good or bad, will be brought before the judgment seat of God. God, being an omniscient God who knows everything, even the thoughts and intentions of the heart, he will be able to summon all of that history before his tribunal on the great day. He will be able to do so for every single person of all the billions of people who have ever lived. He will infallibly and inerrantly be able to account for every idle word. Now, I don't know, and John Owen admits he does not know, that that means that you will have to stand and give an account for every idle word, every solitary sentence. As, jo as Robert Dabney said, it is called the day of judgment, after all. <laughs> the, uh, but what we can say, is, and, and, and Owen, especially for believers, he, you know, that, that's one of the questions people often have. Do I, as a believer, am I going to have to have all of my secret sins paraded uh, throughout the whole auditorium in the judgment day before everybody 
and Owen said he was doubtful of that. And I am too. Uh, I, I'll, I'll get more to the acquittal that comes at the judgment. But let's look at a few verses here from your Bible. If you have your Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn with me, 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians and uh, chapter 1, please. 2 Thessalonians, you can find it before the pastoral epistles, Timothy, Titus. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and look verses 7 through 10. I'll start at verse 6. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. He's speaking to a persecuted church of, filled with persecuted believers, people who have had their uh, possessions taken, people who have been thrown in jail, people who may have had a church building burned down. And what is he saying? It is only just for God, that it is, it is only righteous for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Verse 7, And to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. That is, Christ will bring about, look at verse 8, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel. There is a day of judgment coming, Paul is saying. You are afflicted in this world. We think about what we heard just a few weeks ago about our brothers and sisters in northeastern India who have had their churches burned to the ground, who have been harassed and persecuted by people of other religions. And what is our response to that? We enter into the humiliation of the Lord. Look at how they treated our Lord. Jesus told us that no man is above his master. And if they, they treated the master poorly in this world, they will treat his followers poorly in this world. But should we just... Be discouraged by that? No. What does the apostle do? He points our minds towards the judgment day. We can be at rest and be at peace in the midst of these afflictions and sorrows that we share with our brothers and sisters because we know God is going to afflict those who afflicted his church. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me, says Jesus. Not why do you persecute my church, not why do you persecute my people, why do you persecute me? Jesus takes it personally. And he's the one that's going to sit on that judgment throne. The people who just burned down those churches are going to stand before the glory of him who is the head of that church. They will not stand before that man in his humiliation riding a donkey. They will stand before him who will be transfigured in their sight, who, whose body is as burnished bronze, who is as fire from the waist down, a figurative description of the glory of Jesus Christ Jude, verses 14 and 15. There's only one chapter in Jude. Jude, chapter 1. It's right before the book of Revelation. Verses 14 and 15. 
it was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. What is the point here? That even from the earliest days of the history of man, the seventh generation from Adam, God had raised up a prophet, Enoch, who was preaching what? About the judgment to come. In 2 Peter, also, chapter 2, 2 Peter, chapter 2 and verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for what? For the day of judgment. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, the next chapter over, verse 3 to 5. People are saying, hey, where's your Jesus? I thought he was coming back. Know this, first of all, says Peter, that in the last days, that is the final age which we live in, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? I thought you said Jesus was returning. It's been 2,000 years. When are you going to come off your fantasy? Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, listen to what Peter says, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for what? For fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And, you know, we could, we could look at others. I probably need to keep us moving here. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14 says, God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. You have the book of Romans chapter uh, 14, which has a really interesting and uh, practical application, I think. Romans chapter 14, verse 10 and 11. But why? But you, why do you judge your brother? Notice what he, Paul's dealing with here. He's, he's dealing in this chapter with the issue of Christian liberty. Uh, there's weaker brethren, there's stronger brethren. Some are judging others. You know, if they were really Christians, they wouldn't do that. Uh, others, uh, you know, are holding them in, others in contempt. And he says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And so Paul is saying that the, the doctrine of the final judgment is of use right here in this church, pewed from pew, in the way we treat one another. Now, that's my first point. The, something of an overview of the case for the eternal judgment from the Scriptures. But secondly, with the help of Owen here, I want to talk then about this judgment and its eternal nature. 
that this judgment of which we're chiefly speaking here is not a temporal judgment. It is not a historical judgment. Now, God sometimes does bring about temporal and historical judgments. Sometimes uh, men who do evil face the consequence of that evil doing. And I think one of the reasons is, is otherwise we might get uh, overly discouraged that there will be no final judgment if we didn't from time to time see historical judgments on men. But for example, in 1 Samuel 25, we see God judged Nabal. Remember Nabal, boys and girls? Nabal was that um, husband who was just a surly, selfish man. His flocks are being protected by David, and David comes to see if he and his men can celebrate one of the festivals of God and have some sheep to make the offerings. And Nabal basically says, who's David? No. And God judges Nabal uh, for rejecting David. And it's a type of judgment of those who reject Jesus Christ, the son of David. In 2 Kings chapter 15, we see King Uzziah. Now Uzziah, I think, was a good king overall, but he made... Uh, he got a little too high and mighty. And he began taking to himself the office of the priest, which the king was never to do. And he made offerings at the temple. And what did God do? God brought a temporal judgment of leprosy on him for that. In Genesis chapter 6 through 9, we see that antediluvian generation, that is the generation before the flood, they are swept away. They, their hearts were inclined towards evil always. And God brought this judgment on them that we should learn about the final judgment that is coming with fire. In Genesis 19, we read of Abraham and his nephew Lot and how God rescued Lot out of the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah and brought a judgment from on high. 1 Samuel 15, we remember how King Saul, because he was unfaithful and he wouldn't wait for Samuel to make the offering. He did kind of what Uzziah would do later. He, he went ahead and made the offering himself. And as Samuel was walking away, he grabbed Samuel's garment and the garment tore. And Samuel said, God is tearing the kingdom away from you, Saul, and giving it to one who has a heart for me. And that was David. Number 16, we see that the sons of Korah rebelled and God brought fire from the altar and burned up the sons of Korah and swallowed up Dathan and Abiram uh, before the eyes of Israel because of their rebellion against Moses and against Aaron. So God does, we see, bring judgments periodically. But we also know from the Bible that the wicked many times prosper. And in fact, it seems to go well with them exceedingly, even more so than it does for believers in this world. And we see, for example, how the psalmist struggled with this. Here, the psalmist was going through great difficulties, and they were struggling. They were faithful to God. They loved the Lord. They observed the Lord's commandments, and yet they found that they were afflicted. And they looked at the hypocrites in Israel, and the people who seemed to disobey God and disregard God's commandments, and they were prospering, and they were healthy, and they had all kinds of blessings, and the psalmist became grieved in his own spirit, even to the point of maybe even thinking, maybe this is not worth it, and I'll just, I'll leave God. 
His soul became so embittered by this reality. And then, but what was it that, that saved the psalmist, so to speak? It was, the, it was the doctrine of the final judgment. He said, but yet when I consider the end, when I consider the great day of judgment and what God will do to the wicked, everything in my life are rights. Temporarily, I lost my senses when I looked with the eyes of the world at the prosperity of the wicked. But when I beheld the final judgment and I saw what God would do in that final day, I remembered, in a sense, what Jesus would later say on the Sermon on the Mount, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his soul? The final day has a way of uprighting our reality. Jonathan Edwards spoke from Deuteronomy of the sinner's feet being in slippery places. You know that, that great famous sermon, sinners in the hands of an angry God, and he pulls it from Deuteronomy and that their feet are in slippery places. Speaking of the wicked, the wicked seem to be doing well, but their feet are, their feet are like on, on black ice. At any moment, they may just fall down, but their fall will not just be a fall a few feet to the ground where they might break an arm or sprain a wrist. It's a fall that will plunge them into hell itself. It was the sermon that, that shook the colonies. And that's what, exactly what we need today in the United States. We need to get people's eyes off of this world to the final judgment of God. John Owen says that God has determined an unalterable, unalterable day. Acts 27 verse 31, God hath appointed a day. And in the day is known only really to God himself. The angels do not know when this day of judgment is coming. Jesus even said in his own human nature, I emphasize in his human nature, he does not know when this day will be. Now, in his divine nature, he does, because he is fully God as well. In his manhood, in his human nature, the Father has been pleased to hide it from him. Then we see, again with the help of Owen here, that it is Jesus who will be the judge on the great day. Now, the Bible says God is going to bring about the final judgment. But what Owen reminds us here is that God will do this chiefly through the person of the Son. That is, God has appointed Jesus Christ to be the administrator of that judgment. The Father and the Spirit have committed this judgment to the Son. Now, whenever one person of the Trinity does something, there's a sense that all three persons of the Trinity are involved in that act. But it is chiefly given to Christ here. Now, Jesus will do this uh, in his two natures. Remember, boys and girls, we've been talking about this a lot, that Jesus is one person, but he has two distinct natures. I hope you know what they are. I hope you know what I'm about to say. Do you young kids know what I'm about to say? Jesus has two natures. He is truly God and he is what? Truly man. And Jesus, in his one person, on the throne, 
as one both God and man will be the one, he will be the person of the Trinity to render the judgment. So people, for example, Owen notes, will see Jesus in his human nature. Jesus in his human body will be on the glorious white throne. And yet, as they behold the glory of Jesus' human nature, Jesus will also, as one fully divine, fully God, he will use that divinity, that omniscience, that is very much the substance of his deity, for the discovery of the hearts and the comprehension of the thoughts, words, and actions of all the children of men, says Owen, unquote. So both natures of Christ will be operative in the judgment day. They will behold him whom they have pierced, and he who is also truly God will search and knows what is in the hearts of men, John tells us. He will use that as well. Now the judgment is going to be an awesome day. It is a day of great glory. It is a day of great solemnity. It will be the greatest day, if I can say this, because history in a sense will be over, but it will be the greatest day of human history. The glory of Jesus Christ, the one who was despised, Jesus who was reproached, the one who was persecuted by this world will be exalted above the world. And he will be the judge of the world. Now, Owen notes that this, in part, will be to fill sinners with dread. If you look at Revelation chapter 6, we get a sense of the final judgment of God in verses 15 to 17. Revelation chapter 6, Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Now, who are these people? Notice here it's a variety of people. It includes powerful people, kings, prime ministers, presidents. It includes generals, great men, and the commanders. It includes the wealthy. It includes the Jeff Bezos and the Elon Musks of the world, the rich and the strong, but even even the poor. It says here, every slave. What are they doing? They hid themselves. Why? Well, they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us. Hide us from who? From the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That is, hide us from Jesus. For the great day of their wrath has come. Now, I believe he is speaking here about unbelievers. These are people who were unbelievers in this world, unbelievers in life, who rejected God. And they will include the rich and the powerful that you read about in your news today. I heard one of the worst blasphemies I think I've ever heard in my life coming from somebody whose biography came out this week. It was one of the worst blasphemies I've ever heard. The cursing and the use of God's name in the way it was done. That man is going to stand 
before that God that he used such filthy language about. Now, maybe in God's grace, he may repent yet. But if he doesn't, he will be asking Mount Everest to fall on him rather than having to stand eyeball to eyeball with Jesus. Our country worships this man. He's been in the news all week. He has great gifts. But he will dread Jesus Christ one day. Now, what is Jesus going to do on that throne? Three things. Number one, let's start with the good news. You, me, and everyone who loves Jesus sincerely, you are going to be acquitted in his presence. Because of his atoning work for you and because of the resurrection and because all that Jesus has done, he lived for you, he spoke for you, he thought for you, he obeyed for you, he died for you, his perfect obedience, his active obedience, his passive obedience, his death on the cross, his drinking of God's wrath, his uh, laying in death for three days, his vicarious substitutionary resurrection on your behalf, because of all of that and only because of that, you will be declared not guilty. You will be acquitted. You will be absolutely pardoned and forgiven. He will look upon you with a smile on his face. He will welcome you into the Father's home. He will welcome you and say, well done, well done, well done, well done, well done, well done, well done. Well done. Come and stand on my right. All you billions of my people, of my elect, from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, you are acquitted. Not only are you acquitted, but you will join him in the judgment that is still to come for the rest. You will stand with Jesus Christ when he brings the devil and all the fallen angels before him. Owen believes that this would be the second thing that he does. That he summons all those who participated in that rebellion before the creation, or before the fall, let me put it that way. And he will judge them. And Revelation says that they will be thrown into the lake of fire. And then the wicked, that'll include two groups. One, those who were the wicked within the church, the hypocrites, and those who were wicked outside the church. And they will be found out, the foolish virgins who have no oil in their lamp will be found out. They will stand and say, Lord, Lord, and he will say, I don't know you. They will stand at the door and knock, and he said, same thing, I do not know who you are. Depart from me, ye accursed. And then there will be those who also never came into the church. How will they be judged? Well, it depends who you are. If you were a Gentile, and uh, before the time of Christ, 
say you're living in the days of Caesar or something like that, you would be judged according to the law of nature, to general revelation. Okay, Paul talks about this in Romans 2. We don't have time. If you were a Jew, you will be judged according to the law and the prophets. And if you were a Jew before the time of Christ, that is the standard by which they will be judged. You know, the, the, the man who was in hell, he said, please send somebody to go tell my brothers about this place of torment. And what was the answer that came back? No, they have what? The law and the prophets. They speak. And if they don't hear the law and the prophets, it won't matter if a man comes back from the dead and tells them. So the Jews will be, uh, prior to Christ, will be judged not according just to natural revelation, but also then according to the Word of God. And then thirdly, those of us within the age of the gospel, uh, we will be judged according to the amount of gospel that we were given. Uh, to all whom it was preached, that will be the standard to which we stand or fall. Again, quoting from Owen, Owen says, No one will be able to, compl to complain of surprise or pretended ignorance. Jesus shall make sure that all the penalties are equal to the crimes and all the rewards unto the obedience that was rendered. Jesus will make certain that all penalties and all rewards will be in proportion to that which was done in this life. Now, I think, and I'm not alone, so this isn't your pastor Halfcock here, but there are good theologians behind me <laughs> that will say the rewards will be out of proportion for you because of the work of Christ. That is, God will deal strictly on merit with sinners outside of Christ. And they will get every ounce of justice that they deserve. But for us believers in Jesus Christ, the reward we get will be far out of proportion to the service we rendered. So that you who had five talents and improved those five talents, you are given what? Five cities. You are given far beyond all that you could ask or imagine in the world to come. That's why Jesus says, do not lay up treasures for yourself on earth. I got to close here with just a couple applications here. Number one. If you are without Jesus Christ this morning, your first business is to make sure that you are in Christ. You are that make sure that you are clothed with Jesus Christ and his righteousness. How do you do that, you say? You do that by looking by faith to Jesus as your savior. You look to him as the one who is God and who became a man who lived for you and died for you and you put your trust in him and not in yourself, not in your deeds, not in your works, not in the fact that you think you're better than your neighbor. You put your trust, your weight, everything you have on the person and the work of Jesus and Jesus alone. There is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved from this great day of judgment. God has graciously given you a provision, a way out 
from this day of wrath. The way that this day of wrath becomes a day of grace and blessing for you is by you submitting now to Jesus. By believing on Jesus, by loving Jesus, by trusting Jesus, by looking to Jesus, what he says, what he does, that you look to him for salvation. The Bible says that if you will confess Jesus with your mouth, if you will believe on him from your heart, you will be justified. You will be saved in the sight of God. God will declare you righteous in his sight. He will acquit you of all your past misdeeds and he will look at you as righteous because Christ, his son, is righteous and you are in Christ. Christ is your righteousness. Christ is your life. You have to go to Christ. I want to invite you to take Jesus this morning if you have never taken Jesus before in your life. Today, the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. God uses the pulpit to offer Jesus, his son, to everyone who hears. Jesus is being sincerely proffered to you. You just have to reach out in faith and take hold of him. You just have to believe on him and love him and rest in him. God is saying, look, I am willing right now to cancel out all your former debts if you will do this one thing, if you will bend the knee to Jesus, if you will believe on Christ. Listen, every knee is going to bend to Jesus. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. The rich and the great and the the tycoons of our day are going to bend the knee to Jesus. Every president in this world, every dictator is going to submit to Jesus Christ. The question is, will you do it willingly in this life or will you be forced to do it in the world to come? God is saying, I am offering you Christ. Take him. Take Jesus now. Don't delay. Don't put it off. Take him now. Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, I've got to eat with you today. And Zacchaeus said, well, I'd like to, Lord, but i got an appointment. No, Zacchaeus said, okay, Lord. And Zacchaeus had Jesus into his home, and not only did Zacchaeus and Jesus have dinner together in his home, but he invited his lost friends that they too might hear the good news and believe on Jesus. Secondly, if you are in Jesus Christ this morning, and you have done all that I have already said, you've confessed Jesus, you believe on Jesus Christ, what do you do? What is this message for you? Well, our message here is that we all the more seek to bring reformation to our life in greater conformity to Jesus. That we who are in Christ, we rest in Jesus Christ, but we also remember that what is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace. But faith always will produce works. And a faith without works is a dead faith. This is why certain people in the church will be found out on the day of judgment because their life will testify that they had no works. And therefore, they really had no faith. I want to close just by reading to you 2 Corinthians 
chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 6. We'll close with this. The Apostle Paul says here, Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, that is, while we're living here, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. Meaning it's better to be with the Lord than here in this world. Therefore, listen now closely, verse 9. Therefore we also, the, speaking as a Christian here, therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home, here in this world, or absent, to what? Be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one of us may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. How do we respond to this message as believers? We continue to trust in Christ, but we make it our ambition, whatever God has for us, we're that we're pleasing to him.